All right, so we're we're in Ephesians one. We're going to start. Um, let's see. I want to start in verse seven. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on really thirteen and fourteen. But I want to get the context of it. So let's read from seven. Verse 7, Ephesians 1. In whom we have redemption. Now that's going to be important. We're dealing with redemption today. That's what we're going to be talking about. In whom, speaking of Christ, of course, we have redemption through his blood. And then he defines what that is. The forgiveness of sins. According to the riches of his grace. Wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to the good his good pleasure which he purposed in himself and most translations or literal translations will say which he determined in Christ not um, I think that's a better way of saying it that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. Now, we'll, we'll focus on that a little bit. And then verse 13, in whom he also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Now, I read all that because there's some things that leads up. I've been, you know, we were in Ephesians when I was here in December, and in six months I've made progress about 14 verses so there's a lot here that he refers back into the old testament and we're going to go back to jeremiah by the end of this and show a beautiful testimony of the purchased possession and the redemption of the purchased possession because most people because of the way it's worded in the king james primarily have taken this to mean something in the future uh, but paul has taken all of this time throughout this first of this chapter described to them something that's absolutely present in Christ. That's why he's always saying, in whom, in him, the whole way, every verse, at least once says it. He's trying to describe to them something that God has done and accomplished and of which their soul is presently partaking uh, because of their salvation and because they have believed in Christ. So, this redemption, verse 7, speaks of a redemption that we have. We have, in whom we have redemption. In a literal translation, it says the. It puts the definite article in front of it, showing this is the redemption that was always promised. So it's, it's specifically the redemption that we have in Christ. Not just a or a separate one or another one or a secondary one. And he's doing this because... All of this to, was toward God's predetermination 
when the times that he, this, when it speaks of the fullness of times, and I'm trying to get through things quick so we can get to the point. When he speaks of the fullness of the times, what he's doing, he's taking all of the times. We've all read Hebrews chapter 1, right? The very beginning of it, diverse manners. At many times, diverse manners, God used to speak to the fathers by the prophets. He did this through prophecy. He did this through testimony. He did this through ceremony. All the ceremonies of the old covenant, that brings all that in. Those were times. I did a lesson recently about the, the days, months, times, and years and showed how when it's, you know, even the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the seasons were also that it could you that Israel could utilize those things even when God created just turn there for a second even when God created the sun and the moon the greater and the lesser light it says that they were for times days seasons and years why because the thing that governed the ceremonies the feasts of Israel was what months days Times. They'd call them new moons. They'd say, you know, these are the seasons. So he did that so that he could utilize the sun, moon, and stars as a testimony to gather together his people at certain times, like the ceremonies, the feasts, and the holy days. Now, then you go over to Revelation, where it says in the city of God, where the Lamb sits upon the throne, and there is a lamb who says, I make all things new. That in that city, it says there's no need of the sun or the moon or the stars. No need of candles there. Why? Because all of those ceremonies are now done. Why? Because the new covenant, the new creation has come. The testimony is no longer necessary. This is not talking about moons and the sun and the sky falling out. That's what preachers have taught. It's not what it's about. It's about those testimonial elements God utilized under that system are fulfilled. There's no need. It says that. No need for them any longer because their use is fulfilled. Their time has come. The fullness of those times have now come. Jesus says in Matthew 5, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fill it full. So those times came to their fullness when he came. And this is what he's saying here. All of the things that God predetermined, he did so with a mind, and that in the, I always say this, it takes forever to get through these things, but that in the dispensation, in a literal, it would be with a mind toward the dispensation of the fullness of the times in which he would gather together all things into one man. Now, if you look at it closely, and a lot of the commentaries will agree with this, it says that they would gather together under the headship of the Messiah all things, both that which is heavenly and that which is earthly. Now, in that context, he's speaking of the Jew and the Gentile because the Jew was seen as the heavenly. They were seen as the star seed, right? The earthly was the Gentiles. I mean, it was, it's speaking of that which was seen in those distinctions, right? Because this is what I want to get to. 
He gathers both Jew and Gentile under the headship of one man. This is what Paul's whole point is in this letter. And when you go into chapter 2 and 3, it makes it very plain. He shows how the Jews and the Gentiles have been brought by God into one body through the cross, making peace between the two. Not because they have decided to let their differences not separate them, because God has taken away the thing that separates them, even the veil of flesh. Even the law. Why? Because he fulfilled the law, right? Not because they're able to now, because he took the, he not only fulfilled the law in himself, he removed the thing that the law condemns in those who believe. He removed sin, corruption, death. He removed the thing that the law condemned and said, you're not what I'm after. You're not the righteousness that I am uh, requiring. In his cross, he put that away once and for all. This is not a process of elimination. This is a once and for all work that God imputes to the soul the moment we believe. The process is growing in the comprehension of what God has imputed to the soul. The process is not getting righteous. It is comprehending him who is the righteousness of God in us. That's the only process that's in the believer's life. We're always so caught up in the processes, and the process is me being or me doing or me having. It's never about me knowing who he is presently in my soul, because that's the gift. Not of works. It is a gift. The only thing you need to do when there's a gift given is accept it and know it and and enjoy it. Most people don't enjoy this gift because they still think they have to work for it when God's already given it, right? So this is the salvation that Paul is addressing here. So he goes on in that dispensation And then in verse 11, he does something. Verse 11 through basically 13, 14, he begins to do something real different. And most people don't understand it. He begins to make a distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. Okay. In verse 11, now he's going to be talking about the Jew. In whom we, Paul puts himself in there because he was born a Jew. And he says, in whom we have obtained what? An inheritance. What was the thing promised to the Jew? The whole time, an inheritance. Abraham, there was an inheritance involved. Israel, there was an inheritance involved. And so he now says, in whom, this is important, this is where this has happened for them, in whom we have obtained this inheritance. Being which was predetermined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. And I love that phrase too, because it shows you if God works all things according to the counsel of his own will, you know what that means? There is no outside source that can deviate him from it. And if he did that working toward that goal being fulfilled, what do you think he does now that he has it? Now that he has fulfilled that, which he predetermined, do you think we are going to deviate him from it? You think our, the things that we look at point to and say, God can't be pleased with that. You think that's going to change? 
his mind and deviate him from his purpose? No. You know what he does? He calls you back. Calls you back to the place he's put you. If there's a deviation in your heart and there's a gazing off into another direction, come here. Come back here. Even Paul says, when you see a brother who has gone off into some place, you who are spiritual, restore him back to where he is. It actually means to set a bone in place. You set it back. He hasn't moved from the body. He's just a little fractured. You set that bone back. And that's what we do because that's what God does. He shows us where we are. He, he confirms our place and he says, now, let's set your heart here. And that's repentance, really, if you want to get down to it. It's my heart now turning back to the thing that God has brought. And I begin to focus there. My attention is now upon the sufficiency of him and not the insufficiency of me. That's real repentance. Okay? Anyway, that was a little deviation there. But we've obtained an inheritance. Again, speaking of the Jew, because here's what he says. Verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. The word trusted there is hope. Those who had first hope. Who was that? That's the Jews. Jesus even says it, salvation is of the Jews. Paul will say it, it's of the Jew first. So when he says, we who have first had hope in Christ, the Messiah, we've received in that Messiah the inheritance that was always promised to us. There's not another one, guys. And when you have Zionists and different ones today preaching that there's still a, an inheritance God's going to give these people and they relegate it to a piece of property somewhere, then that is a, that is a real let down, right? It brings it down into the earth and makes it very insignificant. But when you show that the whole thing God determined even before there was a man to exist to bring it, give it to, it was in Christ where this was going to be realized. And Paul is saying, this is what we perceived in him. Because we first hoped. God gave this hope. This is Romans 8, right? Those that he subjected to their own vanity. It says he, that God subjected that creation to its own emptiness in hope. He did so in hope. Why? Because he knew if he subjected them under the law to their emptiness, he was going to bring fullness to them. But he subjected them for a moment in time to their own vanity so that those who would believe in the one that he sent would receive the fulfillment and the fullness that they could not in themselves bring about. God didn't subject them to torment them. He subjected them to keep the promise where it belonged, to keep the inheritance to the seed and not to seeds as of many, but to the seed who is Christ. He confined them, imprisoned them to that until faith came, until he comes. Now, we know they didn't all receive him. In fact, John says that. He came to them. When it actually says he came to his own there in John, it says he came to his own things, 
the things that were his by inheritance. But the people to whom he came, who should have received him, did not receive him. Nothing changed as far as God's purpose. Why? Because he predetermined it. He determined it to be in Christ where this would be realized. And he does it according to his own purpose. Nothing will deviate him. So their rejection of the Messiah he sent to them did not deviate him. He said so. Those who did receive him, he gave them the power to become the sons of God. The thing they refused. So in this section, he's talking to the Jew first. What he's wanting to do here is show that the Jew and the Gentile are not distinct as far as the salvation that God gives them. That's a lesson people need to learn today. There is the same salvation, whether Jew or Gentile. There is the same door you have to enter into. You receive the same, no matter what. The Gentiles do not receive a lesser or secondary salvation. Even though the Jews, it was to them first the promise was given, all who believe receive the same. And that's what he's saying here. So in verse 13, he points to the Gentile believers and said, in whom you also distinguishing, okay? But the word trusted here is not in the original language. Why? Because they didn't have a hope. They didn't have a hope. And he'll say that, actually, in the next chapter. He calls them in verse 12 of chapter 2. He says, you were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope. He's speaking of a messianic hope, not just, you know, you were hopeless. He's speaking of a hope for the Messiah's coming. Gentiles didn't have that. And that's what he's telling them. Here, he's saying, in whom also, take out the word trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now I'll stop there for a second. This is the promised spirit that Galatians 3 talks about. You can go back there. We know that the promise was made to Abraham. The spirit of promise is what we have received, which is the fulfillment of Abraham's, what God promised Abraham was the spirit of Christ. Now, it's important we see this. The word sealed. He's telling the Gentile believers, you were sealed with this spirit. What does that mean? The word, let me get to the definition here. The word sealed, oh yeah, is if you want to look up in, in Strong's at all, it's 4972. It means to confirm or to bring authentication to place the authenticity beyond doubt. It also means uh, it's like a signet ring or it's the proof or the evidence that is stamped to, let's see, to confirm the genuineness of something. When we receive the Spirit, we receive something that's absolutely genuine. We don't receive a copy. We don't receive something less. The people to me who would say that Jesus, we get Jesus in this little baby form. 
because they believe that. They get to see we get this seed, this Jesus seed, and he begins to grow and he gets better. And it's our job to protect that seed and make sure nothing happens to him and protect him from you know all the things that might happen. And I'm telling you, if that's what we receive to save our soul, we're in big trouble. If we have to protect the thing that protects us, we're in trouble. If we're dependent upon something to save our soul from damnation and we have to protect it, we're in trouble. What God gives us in Christ is something absolutely genuine, perfect, authentic, and it seals our soul in that which is real. Nothing's going to make it real. God is what makes it real. Christ in you makes it real. You never make it real. Nobody can look at you and say, boy, your salvation really is real, isn't it? No, it's real whether you look at me and say that or not. Yeah, I, could, I can actually look the opposite of that. And if Christ is in me, you know what I have? Real salvation. Because I'm not the thing that proves how real it is. He is. And that's why the process has to be to know as we are already known of God. That's what solidifies it. Being known of God in Christ solidifies everything. The process is my soul knowing what God already does with regard to my soul. So then everything begins to fall in place, line up, all of it. It has effect. It does. But the growth is in comprehension of what God already comprehends. It's me knowing what God already knows and has given to me. So to put us into the place where we determine any reality, again, that's just like trying to protect what protects me. It's not, it's not good. And that's where most people live. That's the... That's the insufficiency and non-secure state that most people live in with regard to their salvation. Their salvation's secure, but they don't understand how secure it is. And they're trying to be the anchor that holds them in place. And you know what's going to happen? Their arms are going to get tired and they're going to stop holding on. Eventually, they're going to give up and they're going to live condemned. But in Christ, there's no condemnation. Why? Because Christ in you makes it that way. And he calls us to just come and see, come and know, come and grow in this grace that I have given you. So, okay, I don't want to go forever today. So, so you've been sealed with this stamp of authenticity and that which is absolute genuine. It's like the signet of a king. It says this is the real deal. Verse 14, <clears throat> this Holy Spirit of promise, that which seals us, this salvation, which is the earnest of our inheritance. People get really messed up. Verse 14, really get messed up here. Because they think of earnest, and what do we think about? We think about down payment. You pay earnest money, right? What is that? Down payment. So we think that this is saying that the Spirit of God given to us is a down payment of the stuff that's coming. 
We have Jesus in us, metaphorically, but not really. He's just like a little down payment until the real thing comes later down the road. Paul has just spent all of this ink writing and telling them, in him you have, in whom you have, in him you are accepted, in the beloved. All spiritual blessings have been given to you. You have the redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. And now, he's going to change in the midst of 14 verses, which we know this isn't verses and when he wrote it, of saying, but the good stuff's coming later. That's baloney. Because that's why on the heels of this, he will say, so when I've heard of your faith, ever since I've heard of your faith, I pray for you that your eyes would be open and that you would know, not get, but know. Not that you will have the perseverance to wait, but that you would know what God has wrought in Christ and wrought in you. What is the hope that you've been called to? That's his prayer for them. Why? Because he's describing something that's present and real, genuine and full. Not missing anything, not lacking pieces and parts. There's no dangling participles and things that need to be fulfilled. There is a fulfillment in you. All of this was the working of God. Now, so that what is the earnest of our inheritance? It means that he guarantees the whole of it. That's what this is actually saying. The spirit in us is the guarantee. And so many translations will say it that way. And a lot of commentaries will say it that way. His presence guarantees the whole of this. Just because he's there. And we're not going to stay on that because I want to go to Jeremiah. We're going to spend some time there. But do not look because there's another... There's another verse. Uh, I think I have it here. Yeah. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, yeah, verse 18 through 22. It says this, and we this is very familiar, but I'm going to connect some things that most time we don't because we just pick one verse out of here most of the time. But as God is true... Our word toward you was not yes and no or yea and nay. Most preachers today preach yes and no. What do we have? Well, we have this, not this. This is yes, this is no. In fact, in theology, there's actually this idea of yet, not yet. So this is something we yet have, but not yet this. And they think that's what Paul is saying in these things, but that's not the case. The not yet is usually the comprehension of something we have. But they say it's not yet. You know why? Because they look at the world, they look at the situation, they look at all the crud that's happening. They look at themselves and they say they can't be true. There's no way this could be true. We can't be in a new creation if this world is in this shape. Some people don't even believe they're in Jesus because they look at themselves and they say, there's no way I'm in Jesus. But when you realize that it's of God and not of you, and that salvation is the overriding of you, 
and the giving of you of something you will never be. And your trust and your confidence is to rest there. Then you can see this world doesn't have to be perfect. It never will be perfect. But who Christ is in me is perfect. I don't have to look outside of him to see the perfection. And God determined that it would never be the case. Why? Because it was in him he determined these things to be so. That's why Paul, it, I mean, even the letter was supposed to be, that many theologians said we should call this the letter of inness because all, they, all he ever says was in him, in Christ, in the beloved, because he wants you to know where these things are real. Stop looking out here to find it or in you to find it. It's not on of the earthen vessel, it's in it. It's in the vessel because Christ is in the vessel. And that's what we're going to see in Jeremiah in just a second with regard to this redemption because that's what this speaks of. All of this was the guarantee of this inheritance until, now in King James you read until, it should be unto. This was unto this. It wasn't until this finally happens. It's unto this. Look it up. It's in, in, even the definition will say it. Unto the redemption. So when we receive the spirit who guarantees this inheritance belongs to us, who is the guarantee of it, that was unto this end. The redemption of the purchased possession. Where do you think we were purchased? You're purchased by his blood, right? I mean, even it says that. We are a purchased possession. We are purchased by his blood. So what is this talking about? God did all of this toward, and the intent is accomplished being the redemption of the purchased possession. Now, there's a lot of uh, verses here. I didn't, I don't think I even read this. Did I read that? In 2 Corinthians 1, God is true? No, I don't think so. No. I went off. Okay. As God is true, this is 2 Corinthians 1, 18. As God is true, our word toward you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yes and no, but in him, again, in Christ, was yes. You know why? Because there's nothing else in him. It's yes, it's done. It's absolutely so. For all of the promises of God in him are yes and in him. Amen. You see how he continually contextualizes it in him. Don't look. I mean, he's like telling him, don't look in Jerusalem and how how screwed up it is and try to see the promises of God fulfilled. You won't see them. In him there, yes. In him there, amen. Unto the glory of God by us. Now, he which establishes us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God who hath sealed us and given the earnest of the spirit in our hearts. It's the same thing. So the earnest of the spirit in our hearts does what? It gives the soul access to that which is yes and amen. Not that which is yes, but not yet. It gives the soul, it makes the soul the habitation of what is yes and amen. That's what the spirit in us, the sealing of the Holy Spirit in us does. 
something that's real. Okay, so there's a lot of places we can go with that, but I want to um, take us to Jeremiah. And we're going to spend some time. And I, I, I did this lesson uh, on the Zoom call a couple weeks ago. And the lady asked me, said, we have any homework after this? I said, yeah, read these three chapters in Jeremiah, 30 through, well, 30, 31, 32, and 33. So four chapters. Um, that's what I would suggest you do because we're not going to read the whole thing because that takes too much time. Jeremiah 30 through 33. Read that whole uh, area there. But we are going to pick out some verses to look at. And this is regard to the redemption of the purchased possession. What does that mean? What was all this toward? Because again, it's on the heels of this that he's saying, I'm praying that God open the eyes of your heart. I'm praying God will show you this in Christ. Right? So, there must be something significant to it. And this is a beautiful picture. Jeremiah 30, we're going to just read some of these verses that I've marked out. Again, read the whole thing, all of these chapters. Um, the word of the Lord, verse 1 of uh, Jeremiah 30. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. For the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again, or reverse, the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Now, keep going. Verse 9, but they shall serve the Lord their God. He's talking about taking the yoke of bondage off of their neck and all of that, and then bringing them into the land. They shall serve the Lord their God and David their king. Now this is pointing to Christ, the son of David, who will sit upon the throne forever. Uh, they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Therefore fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith the Lord. Neither be dismayed, O Israel, for I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. Now these are beautiful promises. Uh, verse 10, I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations, whether I scatter thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee. I will not destroy you. I will correct you in measure. I will not leave you altogether unpunished. Um, verse 12, For thus saith the Lord, Thy bruise is incurable, and thy wound is grievous. And there's the thing. When you look at men, the wound of sin, man's nature, is an uncurable thing. Right? It's always there. You know what has to happen? We have to be saved. We have to be born again. He has to, again, override me. We have to be found in him having nothing of our own. Because if we have anything of our own, it's corruptible. It's corrupt. If I touch it to any degree, it's corrupted. There's actually a place in Hosea that shows that. That if 
if there is pure water, there's this unclean, and it says if anything unclean touches that which is pure, it's corrupt. Just a little piece of it touches that which is clean. It's corrupt now. But then it says, but if that which is clean touches the corrupt, the clean becomes corrupt. You know what that means? That there's no way you can clean what's corrupt. But what did Jesus do? He would heal lepers, touch them, and not be touched by it. You know why? Because he's the only one that could do it. He's the only one that could interface with the corruptible and change the corruptible and the corruptible not pass to him. And that's what my salvation is. That's what yours is. He's coming to your soul. He's transmitted to your soul his incorruptibleness. That's, this is 1 Corinthians 15. That's what salvation is. The corruptible puts on incorruption. Christ in you is there. It's the second man, the Lord from heaven, the life-giving spirit. So 1 Corinthians 15, again, is not something you push off into the future. It is salvation. It is corruption putting on incorruption. Mortal putting on immortality. It is the putting on of Christ, the putting off of man. And that's, the, it, that's what it's describing. So we'll go on. Um, Verse 15, why criest thou for thine affliction? Thy sorrow is incurable for the multitude of thine iniquity because thy sins were increased. I have done these things unto you. You remember what Romans 5 says? Sin abounded. And the law was given so that sin would be seen to be exceedingly sinful. That was what he did to them. Brought them under the law to condemn them as sinners. Not to punish them, but to promise to them there's coming one who will fulfill this law and will not only fulfill it himself, but will be the fulfillment of it in you. That's the purpose of this. Now, he goes on. Um, uh, I will restore, I hate skipping over these verses, but I will restore health unto thee. And I will heal thee of thy wounds, saith the Lord, because they called thee an outcast, saying, This is Zion, whom no man seeketh after. Remember Ezekiel would call him, this is, he said, one day you will be called Beulah. And they'll say, this is Beulah, the place no one wanted, but now is married to the Lord. Now, that's his promises to them. And when he says to them, you'll heal them, uh, I'm just going to, Show you, this is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. This is the healing he's talking about. Same thing Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 53. Uh, verse 21 of 1 Peter 2. For even unto you, even, I'm sorry, even here unto were you called. Because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. 
who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, here's the part, that we, being dead to sins by that work, now dead to sin, not dead in it, should live unto righteousness. Now listen to the context there, that now by that work, being dead to sin, we should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Does that mean your physical body? Nope. It's not physical healing. It's the healing of a soul that was bound to sin. That's what he just said. I'll restore health to you. I will heal you of your wounds. That's what this did. By whose stripes you were healed. And people read that and they say, well, that means, you know, we were healed physically. That means it's always going to happen. We're always going to be healed physically. What about when you're not? What about when that person you prayed for isn't? What are you going to do about this? We're going to blame God. God didn't say it was always going to happen. He's talking about a healing of the soul that always happens. Always happens to those who call on him. To those who will believe this healing always happens. Never will go unanswered. So that's the healing there he talks about and blah, blah, blah. Now, chapter 31, I'm going to skip over a lot of stuff. Chapter 31 of Jeremiah. We should know chapter 31 of Jeremiah because this is the place where he begins to declare the new covenant, right? Because this is the redemption. And then chapter 33 is going to be a mirror of it. Um, Verse 1 of... um, Oh, let's, let's read the end of uh, 30, verse 24. The fierce anger of the Lord shall not return until you have done it, until he has performed the intents of his heart. That's what Ephesians has been talking about the whole time. In the latter days you shall consider it. Verse 1 of 31. At the same time, saith the Lord, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness. Even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. Isn't that something? The whole idea that he's bringing here, I put them in the wilderness. They, and I, did, I did all of this to give them rest. And they resisted the rest that he wanted to give them. The whole thing was the blood of the lamb in Goshen was not to bring him into another form of captivity. It was to bring him to rest. It was to bring him into the place he promised. The Lord has appeared of old unto me, saying, "You, I have, uh, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. That's forever, right? That's a love that doesn't change. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. That's why it says the kindness of the Lord brings about repentance. It's with that kindness that he draws men to himself. Again, I will build thee, and thou shalt be built, O virgin of Israel. Thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets, and shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. Do you see what he calls her? calls her a virgin 
She's committed whoredoms all through this. You know what he calls her? A virgin. How in the world is that possible? They've been worshiping idols, committing whoredoms, as it says throughout this. He's the weeping prophet because he sees all this happening and he condemns them for it and says, woe unto you so many times and now here he can call them a virgin. Why? Because of what he's about to say to them. And I'm going to just go to that. Uh, well, let me let me read again just a couple things. For thus saith the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob, shout among the chief of the nations, publish ye, praise ye, and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. They shall come with weeping and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way. I'm in verse 9. Wherein they shall not stumble for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations. Declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Now, then we go into the end like I said, you need to read these verses. It's beautiful. And there's so many places in the New Testament that it touches on. Verse 29 of Jeremiah 31. In those days, they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. That means the, the sons uh, bear the iniquity of the fathers. That's what that's talking about. They ate sour grapes and we're still feeling the effect of it. But every one shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eateth sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, verse 31, the days come, saith the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. That's what this has all been about. And with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt with my covenant, which my covenant they break. Although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. I will write it in their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them. You see, there's no up here, down here stuff in the new covenant. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Thus saith the Lord, which gives the sun for day, a light by day, and the ordinance of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea, when the waves thereof roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me. If heaven above can be measured and the foundation of earth searched out beneath, I will cast off the seed of Israel for all that they have done. What he's saying there is if the sun stops coming up, and the moon stops coming up, if those things disappear out of their orbit, that means I don't love them 
and I will not keep them. But as long as the sun's there and the moon is there, now this is talking about the natural sun and moon, I will be their God and they will be my people. Now that's an everlasting covenant. That's an everlasting love that he's already declared. That's the reality we come to in the new covenant. Do you think you can stop that? Do we think we can mess that up? When he said, listen, here's how strong it is. Do you see the sun in the morning? If that stops happening, then I stop being your God. If the moon stops coming, you stop seeing that at night. If it stopped being there, then I've stopped being your God and you my people. That's a pretty big deal. And that's just a natural thing. That's this natural sun and moon, but we know one thing, it's going to happen. We're assured of it. We're confident that the sun's going to be there. Why aren't we confident that he's going to be there? Most people, I've, in my own personal experience, I woke up in the morning sometimes after certain times, certain things that I've done or whatever, and I wake up knowing he's present and saying, how in the world are you still there? How in the world are you there? That doesn't even make sense. Well, it doesn't make sense when you're the subject matter, but when he's the subject matter, it makes all the sense in the world. It's not me. It's it's not I but Christ. It's not of us but of him. If that's the thing that governs this, then it makes perfect sense. The earthen vessel is bare is is merely a vessel that holds something of great value. The vessel's never valuable, but the thing in it is. And that's what that's what we're talking about here. This is the new covenant that he's going to make. He's talking about all of this that he's going to do, the redemption of these people, the saving them live out of this bondage, and it, and it comes down to this new covenant that he's going to write it in their hearts. That's important. Now, verse chapter 32, this does not go on. This is not, okay, now chapter 32 goes on into another place. No. What we're about to read in chapter 32 is basically God using Jeremiah to give them a visual example of what he's saying in these previous two chapters. He's going to use him, put him in prison, and he's going to end. It's basically God's using a performance art situation to say, this is what this is talking about. This is what it looks like. Okay, so uh, Jeremiah... 32, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison. So he was put in jail, which was in the king of Judah's house. For, for Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Wherefore doth thou prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. So basically, when you see, it's kind of like um, Joshua. You remember Joshua was put into a pit and then put in prison. It's the same picture. That was a picture of Christ in his death and his burial, right? 
So you see him put in prison. Same thing's happening here in Jeremiah. And in that work of him being put in prison and the work of death, God speaks to him. In verse 6, Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Behold, Hanamiel, the son of Shalom, thine uncle, shall come to you, saying, Buy thee my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is thine to buy it. You remember Ruth, the kinsman redeemer. It's the same picture here. All right. So he has right to redeem this. So the, so the, his cousin basically comes to him and says, now buy this field for me because you're the only one that has right to redeem it. And that's going to protect it from Babylon. That's going to protect it from these enemies. It's yours. Take it. Right? So while he's in prison, thank you. While he's in prison, he, uh, purchases this property. So, Hannah Mill, verse 8, Mine uncle's son came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said unto me, By my field, I pray thee, which is in the country of Benjamin. For the right of inheritance is thine. <laughs> That's important, isn't it? The right of inheritance is thine, and the redemption is thine. Buy it, listen to this now, this is important, buy it for yourself. He didn't say buy it so the people can have it. No, buy it for yourself. This is a work of God doing this for himself. He did it according to the counsel of his own will. He did this for himself to fulfill his own will and purpose. We benefit. But he didn't do it for us. He did it for himself. That's a lesson in itself. Because we are so self-centered, we think this is all about us. No, it's about him. He did this for him. Okay, so buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. I bought the field of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, that was in Anathoth, and weighed him the money, even 17 shekels of silver. And I subscribed the evidence. This is what's important. And I subscribed or wrote the evidence and sealed it and took witnesses and weighed him the money in the balances. And I took the evidence of the purchase, <clears throat> both that which was sealed according uh, to the law and custom and that which was open. Now there were, so there were two copies. There was a copy that they were, they, they kept open and there was a copy that they had that was sealed up. But both copies, he says, he had. And I gave the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, <coughs> the son of Masiah, and then the sight of Hanamiel, mine uncle's son, <coughs> excuse me, and in the presence of the witnesses that subscribed the book of the purchase before all the Jews that sat in the court of the prison. And I charged Baruch before them, saying, this is the part. This is the part. Notice what he did now. It says, I subscribed the evidence. We're going to look at these words in just a minute, but it's important. He wrote this down as evidence of this purchase. 
This is what proved. This was the evidence that the thing was his and that it was purchased with their amount of money that was asked for. He had the proof of it all written down. Two copies of it, one sealed, one open. So he told Baruch before them saying, Thus saith the Lord, this is the word of the Lord, not just Jeremiah, the God of Israel, take these evidences, the evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed and the evidence which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel that they may continue there many days. Many days means for a long, long time. You know what that also means? Forever. <coughs> What's the proof? The proof of the evidence was put in earthen vessels. The proof of the redemption of this place was placed in earthen vessels. God did this for a reason. This is a testimony. You want to talk about the redemption of that which was purchased, the evidence of it is in the earthen vessel. You don't have to prove it any other way. There's no other way to prove it. I can look at you, I can look at me, and the proof that we are the purchased possession will not be found there. It's not found looking at the earthen vessel. It is in the earthen vessel. That's the evidence. Now, why do I say it's the same thing? Because when, and this goes forever, uh, Jeremiah asked him, why in the world did I do this? Why did I put this in earthen vessels? He basically said, because this is verification that this land is going to be yours and not Babylon's. This guarantees that they will come into a land and they will have access to this land and they will have houses and they will have vineyards and, the, you know, He's speaking again of them coming in and you know being brought into the place that he had promised them. But what verifies it? What makes it guaranteed for them? The deed that he wrote up, the legal document that proves and give evidence to that purchase, and where was it? In the earthen vessel. The whole time. It was always there. And God said, I want it there so it'll remain there for a long time. Isn't that something? Now, here's here's even more. Um, the word is the same. <coughs> there's a there's a couple of places in thirty one where he says, "I will put my law in their hearts and their minds," because he he's. Uh, I'm skipping a few things, so I'm having to find it. Yeah, I'll put my law in their inward parts. The one, the word put there is not just like we put something somewhere. In the Hebrew, it actually means perform. I will perform the law in their hearts. Is that not what Paul says? That Christ in us is the fulfillment of the righteousness of the law in us. I will perform my law in their hearts, in their inward parts. So the word here subscribe to write it I will write it in that's the word katab uh, which means to engrave it or to write it or to record it it's the same word that is used uh, in this now the word here 
means a book or a legal document, a deed of purchase when he says that I subscribe the evidence. That's what the word evidence means. The evidence is a legal binding deed of purchase. Okay. The same word when it says I subscribed that deed of purchase is the same word that's used in, in, in him describing the bringing of a new covenant where he says I will write it in their heart. So when he writes it in our heart, it's the same as him subscribing the evidence of the deed of purchase. See that? Isn't that something? That's why I said it's not another thought. It's him in a picture using things like he does to describe what this new covenant in the heart looks like. It's the putting of the deed of a purchased possession in an earthen vessel. And it's saying it's going to stay there forever to prove and give a guarantee that this is done. This whole thing is done. You can see Babylon taking things over and you can see the enemy coming into the land. I don't give a crap. It is done, right? Because the proof of it is in the earthen vessel. And the problem is we're waiting until Babylon's done and the enemy's out and all the bad crap's over with and everything handled. And we're like, finally. And God said, no, the finally was before all that. The finally happened before you could give ocular or visual evidence that it was so. It was so because I placed it in the earthen vessel and it's there forever. It can't be taken out and there's never proof that it was. So it's the same. Again, you can go into Ruth and see the same redemption that happens. And I have that here, but we won't go into it. But that same redemption happens with her because he... He, he redeems her. She lays under his skirts and is redeemed now. It's the same thing. This is the redemption that all of this that God did and predetermined was toward. That's the redemption of the purchased possession because God has placed in the earthen vessel this great salvation, every spiritual blessing. Now, when you read Paul saying, <coughs> all of this, is that God has placed treasure in an earthen vessel so that the excellency would be of God and not of us. Now think of it in terms of what we just read here in Jeremiah. That it's not just like we think. You know, we think treasure is gold and silver, and that's true too, and there's places that say that. But think of it as the treasure being in an earthen vessel is the actual legal document that proves that we are his, that proves that he has purchased us, that proves and gives actual legal binding proof and evidence that we are his and he is ours and it will stay there forever. You can't make him take it out. That's the part we wrestle with. (laughs) I wrestled with it. I thought I could just you know, think a bad thought and he would take it out. No. He sealed it. See what he said? He said he sealed it in the vessel too. He sealed it there. So when he tells them you're sealed with the spirit of promise, this was all toward the redemption of the purchased possession. This is what he's saying. This is in you. This is in you. And so we'll we'll stop there. But <clears throat> I say read these verses because it goes into one king, one priest, 
uh, that the whole place will, that land that he just purchased be called the Lord of Lord who is our righteousness. I mean, it's beautiful. So we're done.